Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't, today is August the 19th, 2021, and this is episode 2939 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Thursday. Time for the Expert Council Q&A show. I've got a good show for you today. I've got Paul Wheaton on some of the latest rocket mass heater innovations that are coming out of Montana up there at Paul's Place, including a rocket mass heater workshop they will be running very shortly. Dr. Ken Berry on children and nutritional supplements. Tim, Toolman Cook, brush cutters, laser levels, and more. How about you find a knife or you got a knife that's got some big old dings and nicks in it, and you got to take quite a bit of metal off of it. How do you do that? Patrick Rorman will talk about that. Reconditioning lead-acid batteries with Derek Aban-Pietro. Growing moringa trees for fodder with Nick Ferguson. And then i got a quote of the day for you. I'm going to give you the quote now. I'm going to tell you this is one of these rare instances where I give you a quote of the day, and I don't really agree. I agree with the sentiment, but I think the point misses the mark of the reality. It's a very famous quote by William Hazley. And he said, there are no extraordinary men, just extraordinary circumstances that ordinary men are forced to deal with. Again, w William Hazley said that. I don't agree. I don't agree. And the short version for now is because in those extraordinary circumstances, some men rise and behave in an extraordinary way. And many don't. So we'll talk about what that means, how that relates to something like sculpting, and why it matters as we examine ourselves and who and what we really are and what we're really all about. And are we ready to deal with extraordinary circumstances? Because when we hear the words, well, I'll save it. I'll save it till later. Let's go ahead and jump on into this. Uh, starting out with someone we haven't heard much from lately, Paul Wheaton. Actually, I want to say... I've got some people I need some questions for that I, I don't have a lot of questions for right now. I could use some more for John Bush on crypto or Kratom or CBD, any of those things. Amy Dingman on raising children, homeschooling, etc. I could use some for. Um, I could use some for Jessica Dissing Mills on uh, getting in the outdoors, hiking and stuff like that. Um, I could definitely use some stuff for Nicole Sauce on coffee or small business or web or anything else. I hadn't had any for Michael Jordan on bees and mead and honey for a long time. Um, we get a lot for John uh, Pugliano, but I think we're out of questions for him at the very moment. Paul Wheaton will always be willing to answer questions. Darby Simpson, Jeff Lawton, I'm out of questions for a lot of these guys. Uh, ben Falk, um, all of those. I, I really I need some more questions. I got some piking going on out there, too. But I got a lot of experts who are willing to answer the questions if they come in. So I really need material for the next couple of weeks uh, to kind of build up some reserves. And so if y'all can get me some questions, any of the experts uh, you want to send them in for, remember you can go to the survivalpodcast.com and there's a page that says about. And it tells you all about TSP. And one of the sub pages in the about tab says meet the expert council. And If you go there, you can see all our expert council members. Just email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, TSPC expert in the subject line. That way I'll make sure I find it if it goes in the spam or something. Jack, my question's for expert council member, fill in the blank. My question is one sentence question. Return, return, details as much as you need to give me. But let's get that question concise and precise. And that way your expert will know what they're answering for you. But I really, I'd like some more for Amy Dingman on homeschooling and, and, and rearing children in, in a non-brutal way. Because Amy is a great resource. If we don't have the questions for her, she doesn't have the answers for us. All right, with that, now let's talk to the Duke of Permaculture himself, Paul Wheaton, and some of the latest stuff coming out of his laboratory up there in the wilds of Montana when it comes to rocket mass heater technology. 
Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Permies.com with another update from Wheaton Labs. Um, I thought a good thing to talk about today, and I got Kyle with me. Hello. And he's listened to bunches of your podcasts. And uh, the thing to talk about today is with the upcoming Rocket Mass Heater Jamboree, and we're going to have eight instructors. So there'll be eight builds at any time. And I, from the list of 24 different things we hope to build, uh, here is the top nine things. And so you asked me to report on innovation. So we're going to have some things we've done before we're going to do again. And we've got some things we have never done before, and we're going to try those out. And so um, first item on the list, the rocket-assisted solar food dehydrator. So during the permaculture technology jamboree that we just wrapped up a few weeks ago, um, we built most of this. So uh, most, yeah, yeah, the solar part looks like it's pretty well done. Yeah, and they've cobbed and have the core built, and they just have to put it all together. I think. Right. There's like just maybe two days left on it, or something like, it, like yeah. that. And um, but the idea is is that it'll be a solar food dehydrator, and it's. We already have a giant solar food dehydrator, but we got some ideas, and basically we put it out to uh, Uncle Mud. Like, all right, let's make one better. It's like it's going to be a competition. And later we're going to put in uh, a tray of apricots into each one and see which one dries faster. Yeah, how fast can it be dried, especially during the time of year when you may have less sun and a lot of harvest to process. Right. And and it's like, uh, so let's do the test without the assist, and then let's do the test with the assist. Because, you know, at nighttime, then, of course, you don't have sun hitting mm-hmm. it, so it slows down. So we've, we're adding in, like, a little rocket element to be able to give it a, a nighttime assist, a little bump to get everything to dry out better. Um, next item is the Liberator rocket mass heater is going into the woodshop. So the liber- a Liberator rocket mass heater is something people can go out and buy right now. Right. Uh, it's UL listed. So the inventor and the owner of the company is going to be here to – and he's going to be here for the entire rocket mass heater – uh, jamboree, which is a nine-day-long event, but I imagine installing the Liberator won't even take a day. And then, but yeah. we could fire it up. It'll be October in Montana, so it's cool. We could try it out, see how it goes. Yep. Um, but I'm really excited to try it out. It's a UL listed thing. Uh, solarium. Solarium rocket master. So we're during the PDJ. We started work on the solarium. Um, you've been out there working on the solarium. Yes, every day. <laughs> <laughs> And in the heat. It's, it's lots of fun. <laughs> so that's going to be involved in, in keeping the space for all those new boots. Um, well, that and we've got our January event, the Garden Master Course. That's right. Um, and uh, so we've been kind of, so a year and a half ago, we thought about having this January course. And it's like, well, we don't have enough bunks for, you know, a full classroom of 24 people. So the idea with the solarium is, is that, you know, with the solarium combined with everything else, we'll have enough winter bunks for all the students that would attend that event. And so um, you're building the solarium now. Yep. And then by the time October rolls around, it'll be ready for us to build a rocket mass heater in there. So everybody could stay warm and toasty through the winter. Yep, in January. Yeah. And then if we have more boots in the boot camp, then there'll be plenty of bunks in there as well. Yep. Yes, and so um, the designs have already gone up on Permies, and uh, it'll be a pebble-style rocket mass heater using the Puppy Burner ceramic moldable ceramic fiber core. Okay. Um, it should be a rock star uh, kind of build. Uh, next up, the rocket sauna. Uh, the rocket sauna. So you work on that one a lot. That's a lot of that. Um, doing the paneling and then turning our canning kitchen into a sauna. So the building is ready, and the actual rocket heater, not a rocket mass heater, but a rocket heater is in. The barrel, the core, and just a straight chimney out the roof. But we need to rerun the chimney under a bench, which we have to build, and then uh, really test it and make sure that it is sauna-like. This Um, might be a good time. So now you you attended the Permaculture Technology Jamboree. And so the rocket mass heater jamboree is going to be basically the same format, but everything's rockety. And so what we try to do is to have, I think during the PDJ, we had like seven tracks. Yeah. And um, so at any given time, you could wander over to any of the tracks and participate or observe the build. And uh, that's the same thing during the rocket mass heater jamboree. We'll have like probably nine tracks, nine things being built simultaneously, 
everybody, each attendee can go to whatever one that they want, either participate or observe, or they can go watch Clouds Pass, whatever they want to do. The thing is, is it's going to be a lot of different activity happening all at once, so a very rich event. Um, so we're trying to list off all the different things that are going to be built. Um, so the rocket sauna, we've, there's a lot that's already done and, um, a little bit more to go on that. Uh, upgrade the rocket mass heater in the red cabin. And this is, we, we were in contact with these, uh, two Bulgarian guys that were going to come out and be instructors. That would um, be cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, they've, they've invented something huh. that is, um, a commercial product in Europe. Uh, but now because of the COVIDs, I don't think they're going to make it, but they're still working on trying to send us their product. And if they get it to us, it's going to go inside uh, the red cabin. Uh, the rocket cooktop with a Lorena option in an outdoor kitchen. So you know where the delivery shed is, right? Yes. So the back of the delivery shed is going to get some windows open. So it'll be an outdoor kitchen. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to add a rocket cooktop. And you've used a couple of our rocket cooktops that we already have. Yes, I've used the one in Cooper Cabin. Okay, uh, and there's another one in Allerton Abbey, mm -hmm. and then uh, this one is going to be a cooktop like that, only the J-Tube's going to first hit a Lorena option, and that's where you can insert a pot into a hole, mm -hmm. but it'll be a pretty big pot, good for canning, a canning pot, and um, the, the uh, riser will hit just below the pot, and oh, heat from the bottom. Extremely hot. That's gonna well, be... if there's water in yeah. it and you're trying to boil water, then it's A, it, it'll never get too hot and it'll boil that water far faster than you would ever get on a conventional cooktop. Yeah. And on top of that, it heats not only from the bottom, but it also heats from the sides. So it really gets that water boiling fast, which when you're canning, that's kind of like the thing that slows you up the most. So it'll be great for canning, but it's an outdoor kitchen thing. Um, speaking of the outdoor kitchen, we're going to put a new rocket oven in to the outdoor kitchen. Uh, next project is a rocket forge. Now, we've mm -hmm. done some temporary rocket forges, and we have had awesome results. Because if, if you do anything with metal and you're, like, doing a forge, you've got this fan and you've got, you're buying coal. But we're getting temperatures that are much hotter than that with using just sticks that we found lying around on the ground because of the way uh, the rocket J-tube stuff works. And so we're going to try and get something that's... More like a forge that'll last 20 years kind of a thing, rather than the temporary things that we've built in the past. And then um, the final out of the top nine projects is the rocket mass heater in Bartell's bunkhouse, which is where you've been staying right now. Yes, it's nice and cool in the summer. It's excellent. <laughs> so much better than camping. Which is a good point. You mentioned uh, Cooper Cabin. So if you, what's the hottest outside that it's been... And then Over you went in 100 degrees, and it's 70 inside. Isn't that, cabin. isn't that it's amazing? So nice. Yeah, yes. yeah. All right, Jack, that's our update from Wheaton Labs. Bye. Bye. All right, next up, uh, Ken Berry, Dr. Ken Berry, on choosing and using supplementation for your kiddos. Ken, take it away. Hello, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question for Brian today. Brian lives in Pennsylvania and asks, as parents, do we need to worry about supplements for our children, including infants, toddlers, and young children? We have a three-and-a-half-year-old and are concerned with her getting all the nutrients she needs. She eats a very varied diet that is nearly identical to ours. That First of all, I like that part of your question. All children of any age should eat a, a human diet, an adult human diet. You may have to chop it up or grind it up. But they don't need any special baby foods that come from Gerber or any other big food manufacturer. They need to eat what you eat. That's good. I'm currently, I currently supplement vitamin D and a good multivitamin. My wife works with Dr. Stephen Lewis on a very specific supplement regimen. Uh, if we're not getting our daily dose of micronutrients, my, my child must not be either. All the pediatrician guidance says that multivitamins and other supplements are not needed unless there's a specific problem, I would rather start basic supplementation before there is a problem. Uh, and I agree with you and I disagree with the pediatricians on this. If you're feeding your little one a proper human diet that's full of fatty meat and vegetables and, and berries, your child is going to be getting almost all the amino acids, fatty acids, vitamins, and minerals that they need. And that's those four things are literally all the human body needs for optimal function. You need all the correct amino acids, 
which come from protein in meat. You need all the correct fatty acids, which come from fatty meat, the fat in meat, and, and then a few come from the fat in avocado, olive, uh, uh, stuff like that, coconuts. But none of these, none of those three uh, plants are necessary in my opinion. The, the main nutrients that I focus on with Beckett, our young boy who's now 21 months old, is he eats fatty meat and he eats some veg and he eats some berries. So he's got that covered. But I really worry about young ones getting enough vitamin D. Uh, and so we supplement Beckett's goat milk. He's now weaned off the breast. He weaned off at about 18 months. And so we put a little vitamin D drops in his goat milk when he wants some milk. And it's, it's vitamin D in olive oil. Make sure that the vitamin D liquid you get is not in canola oil or soybean oil. Make sure it's in either avocado or olive oil. And then the next uh, thing is iodine. I, so vitamin D has been linked with multiple autoimmune conditions. If a, if a young child's not getting enough vitamin D, it's been linked with many, many diseases and problems through the epidemiological research. And so iodine... There's a direct link between a child's ultimate IQ or intelligence and iodine intake. And it's very easy not to get enough iodine in your diet. And so what, what I use with Beckett is a, a product called Keto Chow Daily Minerals. And uh, Keto Chow is a company. They make shakes and, uh, and other electrolyte things, but they also make this daily mineral liquid which has all of the essential minerals that you need in your diet, including iodine. And so by using, I put a few drops of that in his water or in his milk. That way I know he's getting all the essential minerals, including iodine, so that his IQ can be as high as, as his potential would allow. Uh, but those are the, that's, that's literally it. If your child's eating fatty meat and occasionally you slip some liver in there somehow, uh, and they're also eating some veg and some berries. They're going to be getting all the vitamins and minerals and, and amino acids and fatty acids that they need, except potentially for vitamin D and iodine. And you live in Pennsylvania, so I know that there's, you know, many months out of the year, there's just not going to be enough sunlight exposure for your child to make vitamin D. And so I think vitamin D and iodine are the two that you should focus on. Those are the ones I focus on with my little one. This is Dr. Barry. Hope that helps. Talk to you next time. All right, next up we got some answers from Tim Toolman Cook on brush cutters, laser levels, and more. Hey, guys. Toolman Tim here coming back at you from toolmantim.co, where we build business, create community, find freedom, and share success. Back to answer some more questions for the expert council. I've got a few, so let's see how many we can get through today. And let's dive right in. First question comes from Jeff in Texas, and he says, I'd like to know if you have any advice on purchasing a laser level for landscaping. More specifically, mapping out contour lines, digging swales, improving roads and pathways. I recently purchased around 13 acres in North Texas. It has visible gentle slopes throughout the property. But I want to be precise as I begin some earthworks projects. I thought about renting a laser level, but I will probably have more projects down the road where a quality laser level would be beneficial. I would like one that ha could have secondary uses for general construction, such as framing, drywall, rain gutters, etc. I would like to spend between $300 and $900, US dollars, and that would need to include a tripod, a receiver, batteries, and a case. I saw DeWalt makes one, but it seems like this is a bit more of a specific tool with specific enough application to consider other brands. Any thoughts or experience you can use on, you can use this topic would be gratefully appreciated. Jeff in Texas. Okay, Jeff. So this is definitely something I've been looking into. I haven't bought one yet, but I've been doing some research looking to pick one up and you can run the entire gamut of prices with this stuff. Now, if you want something that can do both landscaping and indoor work, go with an outdoor kit kind of design. So if you buy just the little, so Bosch has some really nice ones. They're the GL70 and the GL100 series. They work really well for indoor use. In my experience, Bosch makes the best laser and distance measuring devices. They just, they're the best cost to feature that you're going to find. But 
If you buy just the indoor ones with the, the two lines or the three lines or the 360 degree swivel, they work really good indoors, but you get them outdoors. They don't have the range you need and you can't see them over a long distance. So what you're really looking for is a new laser kind of version of the old transit system. You know, the type of thing that uh, architects and landscapers would look through. And there's a bunch out there. So Milwaukee and DeWalt both have some, absolutely. The pros of theirs is that they run off of their battery platforms. And one of the biggest downsides to some of these devices is the lack of runtime on the batteries. Anything that runs on AA, Cs, or Ds, they just don't get a lot of runtime out of them. But the DeWalt and the Milwaukee both run off their proprietary battery platforms, and you get all-day use with them. But the problem with both the DeWalt and the Milwaukee is they don't come in a kit. Milwaukee doesn't even have the extra accessories. So in order to do landscaping stuff, and I'm sure you've looked into this, you're going to need, you know, the long-distance measuring stick with a receiver and a reflector, all of that. You're going to need that in order to do this properly. DeWalt has it, but you have to buy everything individually. It doesn't come in a kit. So what I'd recommend, and I've been doing quite a bit of digging so far, and it seems like kind of the sweet spot for the best features, the most accessories, and the most reasonable price, is in the uh, Bosch GRL 800 or 900 series. So take a look at those. They come with the full kit. Basically, you can set it up. And what's great about these is they work over long distances, so you can find slopes. They're self-leveling, but you can also lock them into place so that if you want to get a gradual slope over a long distance, they work for that as well. Then they have the uh, the measuring stick that goes way out, the transceiver that uh, receives and tells you that you're, what your slope is, all of that. Everything's included, but you can also take it indoors and use it to do small, minute levelings and measurings and things like that. So take a look at the Bosch GRL 800 and 900 series. They're both really good. See if you can find something in your price range. Bosch hasn't let me down with any of their laser or digital measuring devices. So take a look at those. I hope that helps, Jeff. Okay, our next question comes from Hatch. And he says, what was the tool Tim recommended for clearing underbrush? I've been digging around on the website and on his channel and can't find anything. So Hatch, I think this comes back from the uh, question I had a while back, the gentleman from over in, uh, I think it was Australia or New Zealand, that had to get in and kill a bunch of scrub brush. And we talked through it and, you know, honestly, things like chainsaws just aren't going to cut it because they're going to get down in there and all that thin stuff is going to end up getting gummed up, jammed into your chainsaw. You're going to have a bad day and safety, it's just not a good option. So what I really like is a brush saw. And the ones that I've run into, had some experience with, are the still. And I've looked them up on their website. They actually call them clearing saws. And what they are is basically a weed whipper, whipper snipper, whatever you want to call it, on steroids. You know, a great big one with two handles, a shoulder harness, and a blade cutting. You know, I took a look. They kind of start in the $1,000 range and go up. But the entry-level one is an FS360. And they're the type of thing, they're well-balanced, they, you can work all day long and move back and forth and cut a ton of brush using that. So I hope that recommendation helps. Uh, if you have any more follow-up, if you want to give me some more information on the specific situation, just uh, holler back or send another email back to Jack, and I'll try to follow up for you. Okay, guys, that's it for me. Thanks again. We managed to get three questions done. If you want to know more about me, run by toolmantim.co. That's toolmantim.co. Or go by the YouTube channel. Uh, every Sunday night, 8 o'clock Mountain Time, we have Talking Tools live stream. Lately, we've been running just about an hour. Answer any questions from the community, and we just interact and get to know each other. So drop by, have a chat, and we'll see you Sunday night. Anyway, guys, as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. Okay, on the laser level, I'm positive the Bosch laser level um, that Tim recommended is, is a good piece of equipment. It's a good piece of kit. I've never used it. I don't own one. I don't have one. Um, so I'm saying it's good, but I don't know how good because I haven't used it. Spectra makes a laser level. I own it. Mark Shepard, I know, owns two of them. Nick Ferguson owns it. Um, I know several other people that own it. Everybody likes it. It costs almost exactly the same as the Bosch. I think you'd be fine with either one of them, 
but I just wanted to kind of put that out there. I own this. I chose this in my research. I still have it. I bought it in 2013, and it still works great. What is it, 2021? Nick Ferguson has drug kids all over the country uh, doing consulting. Uh, Mark Shepard, like, like I said, I know he has two of this particular model. Uh, everybody that I know that owns this particular one likes it. And it's right at about the $650 price point, same as the Bosch. So I would just say that, you know, look at the two of them and make a decision on which one works better for you if you know later level. Both of them are in the show notes for you. Next up, Patrick Rohrman's going to talk to us about fixing a knife that's all dinged up and needs a lot of metal taken off of it to make it ever worth calling it a knife ever again and how we do that without screwing it up being worse than it already is. Hey guys, it's Patrick with MT Knives coming to you today with today's expert counsel question of the week. Today's question comes from John. John says, how can I remove a large amount of metal from a knife blades without damaging them? Details. I have two knives that I would like to be able to put edges on. Both have nicks in the blade. What is the best way to do this without damaging the knife? I'm assuming that a grinder would not be good for the heat treat of the blade. I have wet stones with 800 and 3000 grit, but I don't want to wear them out removing large amounts of steel. Well, John, you're correct in uh, assuming about the heat treat. A lot of grinders are way too fast and um, it's easy to overheat the blade and destroy that edge. What I would recommend first and foremost is if you just, if you want to spend the money on it, a sharpening system like I use is a lot of money, but it can pay for itself quick. It's a slow speed grinder that removes steel quickly. You're keeping fresh belts on it, there's not much heat that builds up in the blade. So you could easily repair damaged blades in just minutes. However, most people don't want to spend the money on something like that. The next more affordable option I would recommend would be a DMT coarse grit diamond bench stone. It's going to be, uh, I think they're like three inches wide, maybe seven or eight inches long. It's about the size of a standard water stone. And the advantage they have is they cut really aggressively and they don't holler out. They over time, you can wear the diamonds down, but the average person, that's going to last in their lifetime. I believe they're around $50, somewhere around there. Um, so it is still on the more expensive side, but it's a great way to save the life of your water stones and um, not have to continually be keep, you know, flattening them and dressing the edges and all that. So. My go-to, um, obviously, is the knife sharpener that I sell on my website. But when I'm at a show or something like that, I have uh, repaired blades with just the diamond stone and then go to the water stones. I'm glad that you got some an 800 grit and a 3000 grit stone. Those are great. In the early days, I would put an edge on a knife with just water stones it can be done, uh, but like you said, it wears down the stone. So, anyways, I appreciate the question. And any of you guys out there has a, any other questions, feel free to send them to me, Patrick at mtknives.net, or send them to Jack, expert counsel in the subject line. Thank you. Have a great day. Once again, this is Patrick Rorman with MT Knives. Stay sharp. And uh, Patrick did have a specific diamond stone in mind there and he sent me the link to it and i do have it linked in the show notes for you if you want to uh to, to see that particular stone or, or get one for yourself next up how about refurbishing lead acid batteries car batteries because you know doomsday could come someday and that you got what you got and those batteries are there and you can either make them work or they don't work or you get no batteries or maybe it's just a cool hobby maybe it's uh, just a useful skill maybe there's some other utility to get out of it uh, when i got that question i was like i know who to send this to derek bon pietro with that hey derek how do we recondition lead acid batteries is it worth doing it is it hard is it easy what do we do 
Hello, TSP listeners. Derek here from AffordableDCGenerators.com. I've got a battery doomsday question. Let's just dig into it. All right. Stefan, or Steven, I apologize if I didn't pronounce that correctly, has got a question about lead-acid batteries. What is the absolute best way to recondition a 12-volt lead-acid battery in an austere condition? Details. Rebuilding car batteries would be a very useful skill to have, both to save a few bucks now and to repair machinery in a survival situation. I've been doing research on how to recondition old car batteries that will no longer take a charge, and every source I find seems to have a different way to do it. Some say to use Epsom salt, some say to use sulfuric acid, some say to just rinse the battery, and some say to take it apart. I assume some of them are affected by concerns about convenience or safety. Most sources that say use sulfuric acid seem to be from foreign countries, which leads me to believe that it's actually better, but American sources are worried about liability. I'm willing to put in the work and take the safety precautions to handle dangerous acids. All I care about is effectiveness. I don't care if that means taking apart the battery and cleaning it by hand or what type of chemicals I have to handle in order to get the best possible working battery. How do I know what chemicals to use and what ratios of chemical to water? What steps do I take? All right, that's a pretty loaded question, and I'm not exactly a battery expert, but I'll take a crack at this. Now let's just talk about real quickly about what a lead-acid battery is and how it is in the discharged and charged states. So when we're fully charged, we have a positive plate that's made up of lead oxide. Negative plate is basically lead. The sulfuric acid, which is H2SO4, is mostly sulfuric acid, and that's the liquid that's in the battery. So we've got plates, positive and negative, that are stacked against each other, and they're submersed into this, this liquid. So that's the battery fluid. That's the nasty stuff you don't want to touch. Now, as we discharge the battery, the, the positive plate is going to be lead sulfate. The negative plate is going to be lead sulfate. So the solution goes from acidic to more of a water substance, and both plates become sulfated. Now, to reverse this process, we apply on a 12-volt battery, more than 12 volts. Typically, we would charge above 12.8 volts, and lead acid could be like a 14, 14 and a half volt. That reverses the process and puts us back to the charged state. Now, on a typical automotive battery, this very rarely would ever happen. So, turn the key on, we crank the engine over for a second or two, during that, we do have a very, very large inrush of current going to the starter motor, but it's for a very short period of time. Once that engine's running, the alternator is going to start charging, and it's going to replenish that starting battery. So it's a very high amount of current in a very short period of time. So a starting battery in an automotive or even any kind of engine situation where we're cranking an engine over, we don't use a lot of the capacity in the battery, so to speak. So we don't heavily discharge it while cranking. Now, that battery needs to be able to deliver a certain number of cranking amps. So that's basically how big the engine is, how much current does it take to spin it over. So if we're talking a, a little compact car, it might only be a few hundred amps. If we're talking about a big honking diesel engine, that could be 800 to 1,000 amps. So it's really about the resistance in the engine, and cold plays a factor into that. So obviously the temperature is low, oil is thicker, it takes more energy to spin it over through that thick oil. And so that's why we have cold cranking amps. Now, let's put that on the shelf for a second. Let's talk about the chemicals reactions that are taking place and what kills a battery. So when the battery is discharged, the sulfuric acid is mostly water at this point. So if the battery is left outside in a freezing condition, the electrolyte can actually freeze and it'll expand and typically crack the casing on the battery. That's bad. So we never want to store a discharged lead-acid battery outside in freezing conditions. We can physically permanently damage the battery. Now, the other major one is that we can sulfate the plates. Sulfation is basically a coating that's on the plates which prevent them from reacting inside of the battery and delivering current. So that can be as much as just like a few percent in reduction or it could basically take the battery down to the point where it doesn't do anything. That's really what Stefan is referring to as far as like reviving a battery. We're trying to get rid of that sulfation. And so you mentioned Epsom salts and cleaning it. So basically you're using either mechanical means, you're shaking the battery, you're trying to get the sulfate off the plates, or we're trying to use some type of solution to break that sulfate down, get it out of the battery, and then we want to restore the fluid, which is basically reconditioning it. The other type of damage is you can have plate damage. So you might have a plate that has disintegrated and fall into the bottom of the battery or is broken. And so typically you'll get a battery that's down 
by like two volts or four volts, depending on how many plates are bad. And it's just completely junk. It's not going to deliver the current that you need. So physical braking, you're not going to be able to remedy the battery's junk. Sulfation, it can be resolved. And we're talking about dealing with dangerous chemicals when we're dealing with sulfuric acid. And here's, here's the big one, is that where do we put it when we're done? So unless you have a means of getting rid of sulfuric acid and you feel like actually dealing with that stuff, that's nasty stuff. You get that in your eye or on your skin, it's game over. So that's a big hurdle for the average Joe. Now, if you actually go through with this process, you might restore a battery to 50%, maybe 60 or 70% if it's original capacity. That's really not enough in a starting battery to crank over an engine. Now, if we're dealing with, like, deep cycle, we got a house bank, whether that's in a house or an RV or a boat, whatever, and you've got a few hundred amp hours worth of capacity and you might only get half of that back, that's still usable. You can still use that. You might not get all of it back, but you, you have a functional battery bank that's going to deliver some type of capacity. And so, sure, you can only use half the amount of current to do half the amount of work, whether that's running lights or refrigerator or whatever. But when we're talking about cranking an engine over, you really need to have all that capacity. And sure, it might actually get the engine to crank in the best of conditions, but it's not in the worst. So it's really not something I would plan to do on a starting battery. Now, when you talk about austere conditions, I'm thinking like the zombie apocalypse, you know, the walking dead, where everybody's driving cars around 10 years after the zombie apocalypse happens. I'm not sure how that works. But basically, the best advice you can get is make sure your batteries are in good condition so that way if something bad happened for six months or a year, you can count on those starting batteries. They don't just wear out if they're maintained. The terminals are kept clean. They're charged correctly. We don't have any alternator problems. And we're not discharging a starting battery to run a radio or lights. We use a starting battery to start the engine and then we immediately recharge it. So those are the best things that are going to keep a battery in great shape. And that's really my best advice. Reconditioning a lead-acid battery is something you might do for fun or if you're like a science guy, but it's not something that's practical in the real world for a starting battery. If you want to go one step further, you can run a dual battery system. So typically when I take my boat out, I always carry a jump pack. God forbid, for whatever reason, the starting battery fails, I have a second ability to jumpstart a vehicle. And having a jump pack is great because even if the starting battery in the vehicle is dead or discharged, you can still get it to start over and get the alternator charging and hopefully recover that starting battery that's already in place. My Suburban has a starting battery in the engine bay and then it has two golf cart batteries in the back wheel well. And that's used for running like my DC refrigerator and radios and stuff while I'm out camping and having fun. But the way the system works is I can turn a lever and connect those two systems together and that can start my vehicle up in a pinch if the starting battery was dead. So that would be like another worst case scenario. It's not ideal, but it'll get the job done. So Stefan, I hope I didn't rain on your parade. If you guys want to do uh, some fun like zombie apocalypse transportation question, like how am I going to survive when the Red Dawn attack happens, I would be willing to entertain that. You send the question in the Jack, and we can have some fun with that as far as talking about like the doomsday truck. Some of that stuff is applicable in just day-to-day transportation. I'll have some fun with it. We'll put our tinfoil hats on, and we'll have a good time answering the question. But you know, let's keep everything grounded. We're not going to go crazy and build the zombie apocalypse tank. You know, we're going to talk about fun stuff that's usable day to day. And yeah, you know, the zombies attack, you got yourself the apocalypse vehicle. So you guys want to send something like that in, have at it. All right. As usual, thank you very much for the questions. Take care. Next up, we have a question about moringa. Moringa is a tree that has gotten a lot of good press in the permaculture community. Uh, it really is an amazing plant. It, I don't think it's worth doing everywhere, but I do think that uh, in the right places, it is an excellent fodder source. And that's what Nick Ferguson is going to talk to you about right now. Moringa is a fodder source. Hey everyone, Nick Ferguson here with another Expert Council segment. Short and sweet, and hopefully for anybody in a similar position, it should give you some good ideas on how to build out some added resiliency for your home or farmstead. Uh, Alright, the question is, uh, this is from Dallas, is Moringa worth growing to produce a feed for livestock? Background, I am looking at a 10-acre piece of property in southwest Florida. Ooh, Zone 10A, nice. Uh, it was an old orange grove that has been replanted with 200-plus moringa trees, 100-plus mango trees, 50 sugar apples, and still a ton of orange trees. It has a water system in place with electricity. 
how many moringa trees should be needed to start producing a component for small batch non-GMO non-soy feed? What else would be needed to make it a complete feed if moringa is a good component for a livestock feed? Thank you for all the information you provide for the community, Dallas. All right, first of all, man, I need to come down and and visit you if if you get this property. This sounds really nice. Uh but is it worth growing to produce a livestock feed? Absolutely. It's desirable and digestible by both ruminants and monogastric creatures both. So pretty much anything from a cow to a rabbit, pig, goat, sheep, most anything will enjoy and do well on moringa. Um, it's high protein, lots of minerals. Uh, it's just a fantastic plant for feeding the leaves. Uh, how many trees would you need to make a complete feed ration? Um, well, you said a livestock feed. So I don't know if we're talking about cows, pigs, goats, sheep, rabbits, ducks. Uh, I don't know anything. So it all depends on what you mean uh, also by small batch and obviously what you're feeding. So, I mean, if you're wanting to get really scientific, then, um, you know, you could start by just getting either your moringa leaves tested by a lab to find out what's in them, or you could probably get a close enough estimate by just looking up some quality lab reports on someone else's dry moringa leaf matter online, and that could get you started as a baseline for your numbers. And then compare that to what a typical complete feed ration would look like for whatever animal you're interested in feeding, and then you start playing around with those numbers in the spreadsheet with other components that are high on the amino acids and minerals that are missing from the ration. Uh, I've done it before. It's tedious work. Um, and, you know, it's it's really species-specific. So if you're looking for detailed info like that, there's no real way to get you an answer with the details I have. And there's no way I could really fit it into an expert counsel segment because it'd be a long conversation. But what I can tell you is look into diversifying the leaf crop. Being zone 10A... Man, you can grow just about anything. You should be looking into planting Cytisus proliferus. That's AKA like Tagasasti or Tagasaste or tree alfalfa. Um, Moringa oleifera that you already have. Morris alba, AKA white mulberry. And I'd probably add in a bit of hybrid poplar, hybrid willow. Mix them all up, provide free minerals. To be honest, that's all I do. You know, if I was in your same position, that's what I do. And then I just observe the animals for signs of deficiencies. Uh, I mean, most likely you'd be just fine providing uh, some moringa and white mulberry and grass and stuff like that as a feed ration. You know, things like pigs would likely need other feed sources, but, you know, your herbivores should be great on those leaves and grass. I mean, like I said, you can get super complicated and scientific about it, but honestly, if you just give them a varied diet, obviously choosing things that are not known to be toxic to them, all the species I've listed are known to be at least tolerated or loved and highly desired by all pretty much any domestic meat animals typical for any homestead use. So... That's what I do. I grow a mix, see how it goes. You're unlikely to run into any major problems, so have fun with it. I'm Nick Ferguson with HomegrownLiberty.com and RarePlantStore.com. Do good things. Uh, great stuff. Great round of stuff for the experts today. Remember, I need questions, guys. Get me some questions so I can get more material to the expert council. So at least if they're piking, I can, I can call them pikers and say, hey, you have questions, I know you have questions. I'm going to have to shake that piker tree sometime soon. Anyway, um, what I wanted to talk to you about today was a quote, uh, uh, again, by uh, William Hazley. Very, very famous quote. There are no extraordinary men, just extraordinary circumstances that ordinary men are forced to deal with. I'm going to tell you why I don't agree with this. Because for every person who was heroic in battle, there were others that were just kind of there and did what they had to do, but didn't really stand up. They, they didn't take any unnecessary risk, and their primary goal was just to get home. And then there's another group that were cowards. I mean, just 
bluntly. That's just reality. And I've seen this on a much smaller scale. I mean, when I listen to this quote, I think of World War II. And I think of that group of young men, and many of them were just boys, and some of the things that they did. And I understand what, what Hazley is saying here, that none of those boys who hit that beach on, on, on D-Day would have done that unless the situation required it of them. Uh, many of them were draftees. They may not even have joined. Uh, they may not have shown up. They may not have even come. Even if the war was there, they were drafted, they were trained, they were put there, and then when they were there, they stood, they fought, and hopefully you know, they made it through. Many of them did not. Many of them still lay in, in, in hallowed graves in, in the fields of France. But it was the circumstance that made the ordinary man appear extraordinary. No. No. I'm sorry, with all due respect to Mr. Hazley, I don't agree. Extraordinary circumstances reveal extraordinary men who would otherwise be thought of as ordinary. That's how I see this. I look at it like a sculptor with a block of marble. If you give a great sculptor tools and marble, he'll give you something beautiful with it. And that's an extraordinary circumstance. We could take a thousand men and hand them a chisel and a hammer, and they can't sculpt that marble. They can't reveal what's really in there. The other side of it, though, is if we give that sculptor a, a shitty piece of marble with lots of fractures and imperfections, and when he starts trying to sculpt it, it starts falling apart. It starts breaking down. It's got ugly blemishes in it. Maybe he can get some small piece of it and make it into something useful, but he can't make it into a gorgeous statue of a man on a horse or an angel over a fountain because that thing isn't inside that block of marble. It's not there. It is only when the, the, the sculpture already exists in the marble and the sculptor is up to the task to reveal it that we get to see that piece of marble become what it can truly become. Does that make sense? There are extraordinary circumstances that we think of, like Mr. Housley was thinking of here, something like a World War II generation, where... This phenomenon plays out across thousands, tens of thousands, or millions of men. And they must reveal then what they are. Extraordinary, average, mediocre, well below. And it shows all of them for what they are relative to that circumstance. I'm not going to call a man a coward who refuses to fight a battle in a war when he doesn't believe in that war. He may reveal his extraordinary nature by willing to stand up and say, I'm not going to take these lives. Another man may reveal his extraordinary nature by defending the man next to him. And another man may believe in the patriotism of defending his nation. And all of them may show us something that is extraordinary because they were put in an extraordinary circumstance. But the ordinary man who truly is an ordinary man, will not reveal himself to be extraordinary just because he's put in an extraordinary circumstance. That potential must exist. That potential must be in that individual. It must. It, the difference is that piece of marble is done. It's a finished work. Nature put force upon it. It made it what it is. It is what it is. It can't change. We can change. The The... The ordinary among us can develop our souls, our spirit, our mind, our body until we become exceptional so that at a time should we be tested with the extraordinary circumstance, we can rise to the extraordinary level. But the, the circumstance itself does not do this. This is why people that have never been through things like military training do not understand training. People think that that a person who is highly trained, when they're placed in a stressful situation, that they will, they, they think that person is going to perform at basically what you would think of as their highest level of training. They're not going to. They're going to actually default to their lowest level of training. That doesn't mean the training they got 15 years ago that was the most weak-ass training there is. What I'm talking about is that person has been conditioned to think, perform, act, and be 
and they will end up with a baseline level of training. Something that they can do just automatically, they just do it. They, 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 even if it's, you know, even if it's something you should have to think about to do the right thing, they just do the right thing in the circumstance. They adapt, improvise, they function. But training has taken you to a point where under an ideal circumstance, you can do things an ideal way. That's not your baseline. That's not your baseline level of performance. When you get in the battle, if you have trained to the point where you can, you can do ammo changes and magazine changes and malfunction drills to the point where you're blindfolded, you can still do them. You'll do them well enough, but you won't do them as well as you will sitting on your rack talking to your buddy. You won't. The better you become at your best, the better you'll be at your worst. That's the extraordinary circumstance. And the reason this is important is we don't have to have a World War II to be a man living in an extraordinary circumstance or a woman living in an extraordinary circumstance. People enter extraordinary circumstances every single day on this planet. Somebody somewhere ends up in a situation where if they don't do the right thing, they or someone they care about is severely injured or dies. And, the, and the, what must be done is not easy. We end up in extraordinary circumstances as parents where we have to make a medical decision for our child and both of them are bad. Both of them have the potential to go wrong, but we have to make a choice. We end up having to do that for people we love when they can't do it for themselves. We end up having to do it for ourselves when we can, if we can. We end up having to decide, do I walk away from a job and risk my future because I believe in something more that I can make something of myself or because I can no longer live ethically with the choice to continue this way? It may not be extraordinary for your neighbor when you enter that point in your life, but it is for you because you're the one that has to feed your children. No, I'm sorry. There are extraordinary men, and there are ordinary men, and there are lower, there are less than ordinary men. When we enter extraordinary circumstances, rather than making the ordinary extraordinary... Just as the sculptor removes the marble that reveals the statue, the extraordinary circumstances reveal the true nature of the man underneath. It is then that you know that this is a person worthy of your loyalty who will always be loyal to you or not. That's when you find out. That's when the metal hits the fire of the forge. And you don't, and the, the point Hazley actually is making here is that you don't see it until the fire revs up and until the steel touches the forge, until the crucible comes, and until you have to know, can I, will I, do I? And it's incredibly important right now because many of us are going to enter many extraordinary circumstances and many hard decisions and many hard choices. We have people having their entire careers threatened over a vaccine. I'm not telling anybody to get that vaccine. I'm not telling anybody not to. I'm telling you I didn't. It was easy for me. It's not an extraordinary circumstance for me. I'm not going to fire myself, and you're not going to stop listening to me because I don't get the vaccine. But what about a doctor who's, who's in his you know fifth year of a surgical fellowship who's told if you don't do this, we're going to fire you? And they're, they're not sure where they would go and what we'll do to their career. What about that person? Or a hundred other instances like it. But they believe it is wrong to have to do it. They don't want to do it, but maybe they're not afraid of it. They just don't want to, and they believe it's wrong to be forced. I'm telling you what some, of you, some people need to start doing. In my opinion, in that circumstance, if you're going to hold your ground, hold it all the way. Stop resigning, folks. Don't resign. I'm not doing it. You can't make me. I'm not going to do it. You want to fire me? Go ahead. But stand. A long, long time ago, when I came up with the concept of the Sentinel, and maybe we need to start talking about the Sentinel again, 
I said that it was our responsibility to watch over our neighbors, to watch over our fellow Americans, to stand watch, to stand guard, to do what we can for whomever we can. Not everybody can be a soldier, but everybody can be a sentinel. Because being willing to watch your brother's back was enough. Because then you, whatever it was you could do for them, you would feel like you should do for them. But another thing I said in that, and this is years and years ago, was that you would reach a time in history where you would have to make a decision, stand or kneel. And you wouldn't have a third option. And I, know, I knew that would happen because everybody in their life at some point will reach that point, a moral or ethical dilemma, where we will stand or we will kneel. Where we will do or we will do not, in the words of the great Yoda. I knew that would happen for everybody because it happens for everybody. I had no idea it would happen to so many people at one time, that we would live in such an extraordinary circumstance because people were afraid of what it would inevitably is a really bad cold. Because our government would be so inept and so blind, and corporations would be so inept and so blind, and our, our supposed scientific and medical communities would be so inept and so blind, and we would have to make a decision. And it seems like right now the entire world is falling apart. Here's the thing. Since we're doing pop culture references today, it's like Men in Black. It's always following apart. There's always a you know star blaster up in space ready to take out the whole planet. It's always extraordinary times. All that matters is when those extraordinary times bear down on you and you choose to respond as an extraordinary person, an ordinary person, Or someone even lower, a coward, someone that runs away, that crawls away, that retreats. It's your choice. And I won't judge anybody, because like I said, sometimes the person that you look at and you think, boy, that guy, really, come on. Sometimes what they're doing takes more courage than you could ever understand, because you don't understand why they're doing it, what they believe in. Where we stand here is not the way that you feel I should stand or I feel you should stand. It's to stand in such a way, to fight in such a way, to rise in such a way that when you look yourself in the mirror, you can live with yourself. And if you can't do that, you might be an ordinary man in extraordinary times. And I don't apologize for saying that. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you guys, if you like this show and the work that we do, you can always support us by doing your online shopping where? Dun, 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 tspaz.com. That's right, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you go ahead and uh, start your online shopping there, no matter what you buy, you will eventually help support us. Every day on tspaz, I feature an item that I personally use personally have spent my money on, personally recommend, and if I didn't personally recommend it, I wouldn't ask you to spend your money on it. Today is an item I've talked about quite a bit over the summer. I figured I'd bring it one, you know, around, around one more time here toward the end of summer. I think it's something that if you give this item a shot, it will end up in your EDC. Everybody I've heard from that owns one said it's exactly what happened. It became my EDC knife. It's the Outdoor Edge 3.5-inch Razor Light, surprise, surprise, EDC. It's actually designed to be an EDC knife. This is a small, compact, 3.5-inch blade folder knife. It's not like super-duper high quality. It's just, it's good. I mean, it's really good for what is a $30 knife. What it has is a blade that can be inserted and removed in a couple seconds, and it's a disposable blade. It's made of the same steel that they make surgical scalpels from. And that means it can be scary sharp, very easy, but it's not a long-lasting edge. It's not, you know, a, a, D2, a D2 tool steel or something like that. It's not supposed to be. Blades cost about a buck a piece. You use them till they're not sharp anymore, and then you throw them away and put a new blade in. Personally, I probably three or four times before I'll, you know, maybe even five times before I'll discard that blade 
real quick run it across my sharpening steel because it's an easy steel to sharpen. It's easy to bring that edge back on really, really quick. When you put the damn thing on, though, it literally is a scalpel. And this means that the blade is always, always, always sharp. I tend to carry two knives. I carry a really good, high-quality belt knife, and I carry one of these. And I use this for all the crap work that I don't want to take and, you know, make a knife kind of dinged up like uh, like Patrick talked about today. Because if you ding one of these up, you throw it away. Now, I want to say something. I always said the same thing about the Gerber EAB as far as what I'm about to tell you. And I have stopped carrying the Gerber EAB, and I've stopped recommending. It's still fine for what it is, but it's not as good as this. But when you take that blade off, it's still pointed. It's still sharp. Parts of it are sharper than others. If you throw that in the garbage, you could get hurt. If your animals get in the garbage, they could get hurt. The garbage man can get hurt. You know, all of that matters to me. What I do is I keep an old uh, vitamin pill bottle, and I keep that in my, my cabinet. And when I replace the blade on one of these knives, I pull that blade off, I drop it in there, and I put the lid back on it. When it eventually ends up full, I throw it away. No one's going to get hurt that way. And I just kind of wanted to point that out because I think this is important. And you guys that are like archery hunters, when you replace the blades on your broadheads, uh, razor knives, uh, you know, just plain old razor knives, anything like this where you're taking a blade off, uh, that is to me that is the easiest thing to do. Somebody told me that from this audience years ago. And I've always done it ever since. Up till then, I would put some duct tape on it or something like that. I think this is a better solution. I just want to say that because I don't want anybody hurt. I don't want anybody's dogs hurt. I don't want anybody's garbage man getting hurt. I don't want anybody's kids getting hurt. And when you go to take garbage out, you know, you can end up cutting yourself pretty bad with one of these blades sticking through a bag or something like that. So just want to add that. It's called the Outdoor Edge Razor Light EDC. Give it a try. Carry it for a couple weeks. You'll never stop carrying it. With that, let's go ahead Wrap things up with our song of the day. So let's wrap up with the song of the day. And uh, as we wrap up and finish Billy Joel week, because tomorrow being a Miyagi Mornings recap, won't have a song of the day. And song of the day today is one of my favorite Billy Joel songs ever. Honesty is the name of the song. And the point of the song is that love is easier to find than someone who's always honest with you. And this really isn't the point of the song, but it is, to me, the larger message. One of the reasons it's so hard to find someone you love who is always honest with you is sometimes being honest hurts a person. Sometimes being honest doesn't seem very loving or very nice. We all do it from time to time. Sometimes it's pretty benign. Sometimes it's telling a kid on a project they worked on, you know they worked really hard, it didn't come out that good, but oh, you did a good job. Right? Sometimes it's kind of a white lie. Sometimes it's bigger things. It takes a lot to have a trusting, caring, deep, meaningful relationship, whether that be romantic, whether that be fraternal, it doesn't matter. And for it to be able to not only be a situation where both people are honest with each other, but where the relationship survives the honesty. That's what this song's always made me think about. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. If you search for tenderness, it isn't hard to find. You can have the love you need to live. If you look for truth, just as well be blind It always seems to be so hard to give Honesty is such a lonely word Everyone is so